Our first reading comes from Isaiah, chapter 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. See, you shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Here ends the reading. The Holy Gospel, according to St. Matthew, the 14th chapter. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And Jesus said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled. And they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets full, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. There are only a handful of events which are attested to by each of the four gospels. It's no coincidence that these were events that had a lot of witnesses. This is rather logical, the way things played out. See, when Jesus does something in private, let's say it's in front of just a few disciples, and then he makes it even more private by ordering them not to tell anyone, at least not yet, then those details just simply aren't out there in the public consciousness, at least not right away. You could have heard about Jesus but not heard about the transfiguration, for example. On the other hand, if Jesus did something spectacular and there were many people there to see what had happened, word of that event would spread fast and far. Well before pen was put to paper and the Gospels written down, there would have been rumors, stories about a traveling preacher named Jesus, who also happened to be a teacher, a healer, a feeder, who did a few big things in particular. Like he was baptized by John. He was tried under Pontius Pilate and then crucified. And to the point this morning, he fed 
thousands of people. Feeding 5,000 men and women and children besides is a huge number of people, especially in that day and age in that area. This is a sizable percentage of the population, and they were all there to see it, to experience it firsthand. So for any event that was that well-known, no account of Jesus' ministry would seem complete without it. Thus, at least within the biblical canon, we have no such account. Each of the four Gospels records this story. Now, the finer details aren't exactly the same in each. That gets into that the private aspects, the private conversations, that side of things. But the broad strokes, the stuff that anybody there could have seen, those details are roughly the same in each. For Matthew's part, this reading follows immediately after the death of John the Baptist. That's the thing Jesus had just heard at the start of the reading. Now, John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod for making a bit of a, a fuss, right? Calling a little bit too much attention to himself. In this case, by uh, professing that Herod and his wife had an illegitimate marriage, which upset the wife in particular. So Jesus responds to this news that Herod's been executed by withdrawing to a desert place, a deserted place. And that first half of that sentence there, you know, the second half is how the crowds followed him immediately. But even that first half could take us down some rabbit holes, any one of which could be its own sermon. Now, for the sake of brevity, I'm just going to share three thoughts on it real quick. The first is, Jesus has withdrawn like this once before already in Matthew. He withdrew when he heard about John the Baptist being arrested. So some pretty clear parallels there. Now this might suggest he's running because danger is afoot. Until Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, he's going to evade the authorities. He's going to slip by anybody who wants to kill him. When the time comes, Jesus will go and die willingly, but he times that perfectly. And now is not yet the perfect time, so he withdraws away from the danger. Call it caution, call it fear, whatever it is, he's avoiding you know, the fate of John the Baptist. He's got some parallels with John the Baptist. He's out preaching the same sorts of things that John the Baptist was. He doesn't want to be beheaded, not like that. All right, second thought. Jesus goes to a deserted place. We could also translate that as wilderness, and then remember that John the Baptist was like a voice crying out from the wilderness. This is an area where people just don't live, probably because it's pretty dangerous. And a side effect of those two facts is that the authorities are rarely there. We might conclude that Jesus is stepping up to lead John's people in his absence by pivoting in a way that John the Baptist would have. Maybe he's going to the kind of places John the Baptist preached, expecting to find the kind of people who had followed him. Lastly, though not mentioned by Matthew, John the Baptist was a cousin to Jesus on Mary's side. We don't hear anything about how they might have grown up together or even known each other really but it's possible Jesus went out to mourn, to be by himself, to grieve. I personally do not get that sense, but I think it's worth mentioning because a number of other preachers 
do get that sense. I encountered it a few times this week. It could be any or each of those three motivations that gets Jesus moving. But in any case, there's that second half of the sentence that I breezed by. He's interrupted because the crowds come right away. Not literally right away, right? Because Jesus goes by boat and they go by foot, but they're not far behind. We go from Jesus wanting to be alone to apparently being burdened by the presence of people, thousands of people. Well, at least the disciples give us the sense that they feel burdened because they grow concerned. It's getting late. There's not enough food. People need to eat. That means the people need to head out now to make it back to town in time to get there safely and to find food. This is one of those interactions that seems to happen on two levels. And at least at first, the disciples don't recognize that fact. Also kind of typical. We have our earthly concerns on one level, the biological sort of needs that underpin most of our activities and motivations, right? If you don't eat, you starve. If you don't shelter, you die of exposure. If you don't move by daylight, you may fall to whatever is in the dark. And if you think the wilderness is dangerous during the day, you probably don't want to be there at night. That earthly sort of concern, that level, is what the disciples are worried about. But then there's elevated concerns. The moral, the righteous, the heavenly sort. Questions like, what's the right thing to do? Where is God calling us? You know, one does not live by bread alone, after all. This elevated sense that we have within us, that there's a right thing to do, that needs to be tended to as well. So if you had the chance to be near Jesus, physically near Jesus during his ministry, while he's teaching, preaching, healing, feeding, then you would be wise to set everything else aside, right? To relegate basically everything in your life in order to spend as much of your time as close as you could near Jesus. And Jesus seems to agree. When he responds, and when the disciples don't quite get it and they're stuck in their earthly concerns, Jesus often responds with these elevated responses. He seems to agree that they ought to spend as much time as they can as close to him hearing the gospel and so on. So, tapping into visions of the heavenly banquet, like we got from Isaiah, Jesus offers food without cost. No cost of travel, no cost of no monetary cost, no cost of merit even. They don't have to earn it at all. They will eat and get their fill, which is no small thing in that time and place, simply because they are near Jesus and seeking him. They are served by Jesus' disciple just because they are seeking Jesus. And that's the kind of thing disciples are called to do, right? Jesus turns it around on them. You give them something to eat. Add to this some allusions to communion. Jesus takes, blesses, and breaks the bread, and that implies the source of this sustenance is Jesus himself. We've got a microcosm, a little example here in this event of the kingdom that is to come, the kind of future age that was again described by Isaiah, but other prophets of old as well. So, what about us? Faced with this public historical event attested to by many people, which serves as an image of our prophetic future together, one in which those who have serve those who have not, 
and we've got glimmers of insight into what each of them might be thinking. Jesus' disciples, the crowds. Well, let's first keep in mind that this dialogue, again, is taking place with consideration to two levels. We'll have to unpack that a little bit more another day. But again, in short, the disciples are concerned with the earthly sort of things, biological need. And Jesus is concerned with the elevated sort of things, the heavenly things, the things God calls us to. And let's imagine this story as if it were a parable. We'll do that so we can use the old tactic of imagining who are we in this story? If it happened now, who would you be? Now, who you would be in the story may change depending on where you are at in life, right? But someone might be in physical and or spiritual need. Those two things often come together and therefore seek Jesus. That's like being in the crowds. The result of their seeking is maybe an encounter with Jesus, maybe even a miraculous encounter at that. But that doesn't happen for each of them. What should happen, and what does happen for each of them within this story, is Jesus' people, his disciples, help them out, offering some of what God has given them and serving these even though they don't deserve it at all. And that introduces the second possibility, and one I bet most of us would relate to. Sometimes we're like the disciples in this story. We don't quite know what God's up to, not for sure. We get hung up on earthly matters. What about the cost of travel, the cost of food, and other things? And we let those worldly concerns blind us to what God is doing on this elevated plane. It blinds us to the opportunities we have to draw closer to God through Christ. Hopefully, however, when we've discerned the call, we get up and serve as we are called to serve. And then the third option, Jesus himself. I realize that sounds a little wild. I mean, who could possibly be like Jesus? especially when there's more than 5,000 other options to choose from. Well, we could be like Jesus in a few ways. This reminds me of the old Roman Catholic theological stance that a priest serving communion stands in persona Christi, as in they are in the place as the person of Christ. You know, we serve that feast to one another the way Jesus did back then. We may also, if only on occasion, be the ones who are mindful of those elevated concerns, the moral, the righteous, the heavenly. Even if a crowd full of naysayers is dragging us down to the nitty-gritty earthly stuff, you might be called to be the one that gets up and says, what about God? What about the gospel? What is the right thing to do rather than worrying about money or what have you? But I want to close where we began, or at least near the beginning, on that line that I said could evoke in its own entire sermon. Jesus heard the news about John the Baptist and withdrew, but then the crowds followed him. When we take a guess at why Jesus would do such a thing, our various intuitions give us different answers. Maybe he's running from danger, something like caution if not kind of like fear. 
Maybe he's running to rise to the occasion, picking up the mantle, honoring John's legacy. Maybe he's running out of grief. He's going to mourn. He just wants to be by himself for a bit. And those are all very human ways to respond, the kind of ways we might respond to hearing about the death of a friend or colleague. Any of those three motivations would be ample reason to withdraw. You wouldn't fault him. We wouldn't fault each other for doing that. At the traumatic loss of you name it, again, friend or colleague, cousin, any sort of loved one, anyone you're close to, why you would choose to withdraw, at least for a time, when that happens. Whatever the motivation, it would be totally acceptable. So even though he gets interrupted by the crowds, we have this feeding, we know from what follows when he finally does get the chance to be alone, why he was going to be alone in the first place. He does eventually get there. Now, before I say what the reason is, let me just reiterate. No matter why Jesus was fleeing, withdrawing was appropriate. And so was what he did next, what he intended to do once he was alone. No matter where we see ourselves in this story, hungry seekers, humble servants, pious hosts, Jesus' example is always a good one. What Jesus was going to do, and finally does when he gets the chance to be alone, is pray. If he was cautious or afraid, he prayed. If he was rising to the occasion, he prayed. And if he was grieving John's death, he prayed. Running from the world and its demands, whether earthly or elevated, that's not a good long-term strategy. You know, hiding away by yourself is not sustainable. However, pulling back to take the time you need to get your head straight and get right with God through reflection, repentance, and or prayer, that's a great example to follow. So next time you think you might need to, follow that example. If you get interrupted with the chance to serve, as Jesus was, well, that's good too. We can follow Jesus' example there as well. Take the opportunity, serve when the opportunity arrives. But even then, once he gets the chance, he withdraws to pray, to draw close to God whenever the emotional reaction he's having. And you have permission to do the same. Amen.